When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. We are in a golden age for translated literatures. Presses large and small have spent the last decade taking stock of the extraordinary bounty of national writers who should, by all rights, have a world audience. And they have finally been putting their money where their mouths have been after all these years. Thanks in part to the rise in prizes for translated literatures and the translators who make those books possible, it feels easier today to hold a book that begins its life in a language different than your own than at almost any time in recent history. On today's show, I welcome Fernanda Melchor, a Mexican writer whose work has had a profound impact both in Spanish and English. She is joined by her English translator, Sophie Hughes, whose work with Spanish-language authors from around the world is part of this new movement towards translation. Fernanda's most recent novel, Paradise, is the perfection of her one-of-a-kind style, a reader experience something akin to being shot out of a gun. Her story of a society defined by its enormous inequalities and its rampant misogyny brings us into the lives of two young men joined by an unquenchable thirst for changing their circumstances and propelled to attempt a needless and brutal crime. In Sophie Hughes's translation, we get access to a truly unique voice in Latin American literature. And I know you will be thrilled to hear Sophie and Fernanda talk about their work together, transforming Fernanda's novels. As this is my first ever translator-writer show, I have asked Fernanda to read an extended passage, both in Spanish and English. This will allow bilingual listeners the enjoyment of hearing the text move between the languages. And for listeners who speak one or the other language, there is the same chance to hear a bit from Fernanda's Paradise. Let's start the show.
Welcome back. My guests today are the first writer-translator pairing for the show. I couldn't be more excited to introduce Fernanda Melchor and Sophie Hughes, who have joined me today to talk about Fernanda's newest novel, Paradise, out now from New Directions Press. Fernanda was born in Veracruz, Mexico, and her first novel, Hurricane Season, stormed onto the world stage and was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, longlisted for the National Book Award, and was a New York Times notable book. Her translator for both novels, Sophie Hughes, works with some of the most exciting and enduring writers in the Spanish-speaking world. Her roster of award-winning writers includes Enrique Villamatas, Jose Revueltas, and Elia Trabuco Saran. She is winner of the Penn Translates Award, and she has been shortlisted for the Booker International and the Dublin Literary Award. Our conversation today will focus on Fernanda's novel, Paradise. Like hurricane season before it, Paradise features Fernanda's blazing style of propulsive prose that drives a plot which promises catastrophe and violence. Franco, known as Fat Boy, and Polo are both stuck in the quicksand of social immobility. Franco, a misfit who obsesses over his married neighbor and Polo, increasingly aware that his prospects for raising himself out of poverty are dim, whittle their days away with drink and idle dreaming. When an opportunity arises that seems to offer a way for both boys to address their deep-seated needs, they begin an ill-conceived plan that leads toward their inevitable downfall. The paradise of the title is a luxury housing complex in which Franco lives and Polo works. The proximity of that luxury to the poverty and desperation of the neighborhood where Polo lives, Progreso, marks the deep inequities of the Mexico of the novel. Reading Paradise is like few experiences one can have with prose. There's an unstoppability to the language, a seamless mixture of high and low language, vernacular and lyrical, that feels at times more like cinema than literature. There's an uncomfortable vividness to the aesthetic magnificence that Fernanda gives to scenes of abject violence and despair. And this is matched with a clear intentionality in the beauty of descriptions of everyday life in Mexico. It is no wonder that Fernanda has been called one of Mexico's most exciting young writers. And her one-of-a-kind style and form has been beautifully rendered into English by Sophie Hughes. I'm so happy to have you both here today. Welcome, Fernanda and Sophie. Thank Hi, you. Grace. Nice to be here. <laughs> so as the first show um, that I've offered with a writer and translator, I think it would be wonderful to celebrate that with a bilingual reading from Paradise. Can we have you read um, both in Spanish and in English, Fernanda? Would you mind reading a, a section for us? Uh, of course, I, I never done it. Actually, I, I've always read in Spanish, or sometimes I read uh, small excerpts in, in in English. And and this will be the first time I I, I do both. I'm I'm thrilled and nervous also. <laughs> well, and, we're um, we're very happy that you're willing. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And um, I uh, maybe I can give you a little bit of uh, context uh, for uh, where this is in in the story. Uh, the, what I'm going to read is uh 
a fragment. Uh, it's just in the beginning of the book. We are getting to know the characters. We're getting to know uh, Franco and Polo. And this is actually the moment, the day when they uh, meet. I mean, they known each other for a while. Polo works as a gardener in, in Paradise Residential Complex. And uh, Franco lives there. And, and they've been watching each other, but they don't really, um, they haven't really met in, in person. So uh, this is this is the scene before. And it's, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a birthday party, a Mexican birthday party with a piñata. And, hmm. and uh, uh, it, it gives you a, a little bit of a context of... Um, what's happening in this world and what's um, Apollo's uh, a normal working day for, for him. And uh, should I read it first in English or should I read it first in Spanish? What do maybe, you think, Chris? Maybe Spanish first. Maybe Spanish. Okay, I'll do it in Spanish. Por eso había estado a punto de mandarlo todo a la goma aquel sábado. No solo porque tenía que permanecer en el fraccionamiento hasta que la fiesta del mocoso terminara para recoger el marranero sino también por algo que le había pasado ese mismo día, horas antes de que la piñata comenzara, cuando Polo se encontraba en la terraza, peinando la superficie de la alberca con la red sacahojas y pensando en los huevos del gallo mientras una cuadrilla de empleados de una empresa de banquetes iba y venía por el jardín, instalando mesas y sillas y carpas y hasta una extensa lona de colores que terminó convertida, después de enchufarle una bomba de aire, en un imponente brincolín castillo. Una cosa formidable, con torres y almenas y banderines y toboganes y hasta un puente levadizo, una estructura colosal a la vez que volátil y etérea, que daba saltos en el aire cada vez que soplaba la brisa del, la brisa del río, como si quisiera escaparse. Y Polo estaba tan entretenido observando los esfuerzos de los empleados por sujetar al castillo con cinchos y estacas, que no se dio cuenta de la presencia de la señora Marianne hasta que olió su perfume en el aire y se dio la vuelta para topársela de frente el cuerpo de la doña a pocos centímetros del suyo, el rostro encendido y descubierto, los labios pintados de sangre como vampira, los eternos lentes oscuros colgando de una fina cadena de oro que pendía entre sus tetas. Iba vestida de mezclilla y llevaba algo en sus manos, un pequeño sobre color manila que le extendió a Polo sin decir palabra, ensanchando su impúdica sonrisa cuando vio que el muchacho no podía tomarlo pues tenía las manos ocupadas con la red así que decidió meterlo ella misma en el bolsillo del peto de su verol de trabajo, con una risita tonta y un, por las molestias, musitado con falso recato. Antes de volverle la espalda y alejarse con su habitual contoneo a supervisar las labores de su recién adquirida sirvienta, una muchachilla de escuálido aspecto ratonil que en aquel mismo instante se entregaba con torpeza a la misión de vestir con fundas y moños las sillas para el convite. Apolo aquella escuincla le pareció conocida, como que la había visto de antes, en la escuela del pueblo tal vez, pero no se atrevió a mirarla con mucha insistencia. No fuera a pensar la patrona que le estaba mirando a ella, de modo que siguió en lo suyo como si nada, limpiando la alberca con fingida placidez, aguantándose las pinches ganas de meter la mano al bolsillo del peto para tocar el sobre y tratar de adivinar lo que había dentro hasta que llegó la hora del almuerzo y entonces pudo encerrarse en el diminuto sanitario de la caseta de vigilancia, sacar el sobrecito aquel y mirar su nombre escrito en una de las caras con plumón color morado, salpicado de brillantina, y contemplar los dos billetes de 200 pesos que contenía, 
crujientes y planchados como acabados de salir del cajero automático, la paga extra con propina incluida que el imbécil de Urquiza le escamoteaba por tranza y por la que Polo había rezongado entre dientes cada vez que tenía que quedarse hasta tarde a limpiar el cochinero de las parrandas. Un aliviane magnífico con el que no contaba y que por lo tanto no tendría que reportarle a su madre. Podría gastarse el varo completo en lo que se le diera su rechingada gana, en cigarros, por supuesto, en un par de botellas de bacacho, o chance aún le quedaría algo para comprar unos pesos de crédito y mandarle un mensaje a Milton para que se reportara. Pero al mismo tiempo que hacía planes, emocionado por todo lo que podría hacer con esa lana imprevista, un dolor sordo comenzó a perforarle el pecho y momentos después se encontraba doblado frente al inodoro, devolviendo una espadaña de bilis que le golpeó la garganta en espasmos de tos convulsa. No más de recordar la cara de la estúpida vieja aquella mientras le metía el sobre en el bolsillo del peto y la sonrisa que Polo, como un tarado de cerebrado, se había visto obligado a devolverle, sin pensar siquiera en lo que hacía, sin poder evitar que los músculos de su cara se crisparan a pesar de lo mucho que detestaba los aires de gran señora de la puta esa y la desfachatez con la que lo había tocado. Porque al chile era mil veces más fácil aguantarse las ganas de mirarle el rabo cuando salía a correr en chorcitos por el fraccionamiento que resistir el impulso de sonreírle de vuelta cuando ella le sonreía a uno. Así de magnética era, de engatusadora. Le darían la razón enseguida si lo hubieran conocido en persona y vivido en carne propia el influjo de sus artes serviles. ¿Por qué chingados no le había devuelto el sobre inmediatamente, diciéndole, con todo el desprecio del que era capaz, no necesito sus limosnas, muchas gracias? ¿Por qué no se lo había arrojado a la jeta después de escupirle que no era más que una golfa, una mantenida que se creía la muy respetable nomás por andar regalando el dinero que le sobraba a su marido? ¿Y por qué chingados no le había dado ella los billetes en la mano, como la gente normal? ¿Temía acaso ensuciarse con la mugre de polo? ¿Contagiarse por contacto de su naquez y pobreza? ¿Creía la muy hija de la chingada que ahora ya lo tenía comprado? ¿Que tendría derecho a exigirle lo que quisiera y humillarlo como urquiza, ponerlo a lavar su camioneta blanca o el auto deportivo del marido, ¿qué chingado se creía que era? Seguramente la reina del mundo, a juzgar por su aspecto esa tarde, cuando la fiesta dio punto al inicio y ella apareció ataviada con un vestido rojo con manchas azules y verdes y aretes de diamantes que resplandecían en sus orejas cuando se apartaba la melena castaña del cuello. Durante toda la tarde, Polo se empeñó en ignorarla, pero era como si algo se la pusiera enfrente a cada momento, volteara a donde volteara ahí estaba la pinche vieja repartiendo besos y achuchones entre las hordas de chiquillos que corrían en traje de baño y las mujeres envueltas en estampados de inspiración tropical tan maquilladas y esbeltas como la propia anfitriona los cabellos lisos e inertes atildados y muertos como pelucas los maridos igualmente ridículos a la saga vestidos con polos rosas y camisas pasteles pantalones brincacharcos y mocasines marrones bronceados por el golf las barbas y las cejas pulcramente arregladas, un corrillo de voces engoladas y hielos tintineantes reunido en torno al chaparro engreído de Maroño, quien se la pasaría la fiesta entera tomándose fotos y discurriendo de política y negocios en la rebuscada lengua de los mamadores profesionales ante aquel público salamero que no dejaba de chutarse vaso tras vaso de su mejor whisky importado ni de lanzar miradas furtivas al tremendo culazo de la anfitriona mientras sus vástagos chillaban y saltaban como energúmenos entre los tambaleantes muros del castillo inflable y corrían a tirarse de cabeza a la alberca lanzando al alaridos de gozo suicida apenas audibles bajo el estrendo de la música que tronaba desde las bocinas instaladas en la terraza. That was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And um, 
Um, well, this is the, the, the this will be the English version. Okay, great. That's why he'd been about to jack it all in that Saturday. Not just because he'd been made to stay until the end of that Brad's, Brad's Mickey's party to clean up the filthy drags, but because of something that had happened to him earlier that day, hours before the piñatas were brought on, when Polo was by the pool, clear leaves from the water surface with a net, lost in a war of his own, as a whole squad of catering company staff darted back and forth across the garden, setting up tables and chairs and gazebos, and even a long co colorful tarp, which, when plugged into a pump, transformed into an impo imposing bouncing castle, a formidable thing with towers and battlements and flags and chutes, and even a drawbridge, a colossal, volatile, ethereal structure that took off each time the breeze blew in from the river, as if it wanted to escape. And Polo was so entertained watching the staff struggle to pin down the castle with straps and pegs that he didn't notice Senora Mariana appear until he smelled her perfume in the air, at which point he turned around to find her standing right in front of him, her body just inches from his, her lips blood red like a vampire's, and her face blushing, missing the trademark sunglasses that instead were hanging from a thin gold chain between her tits. She was wearing jeans and had, some, had something in her hands, a small manila envelope that she held out to Polo without a word, stretching her shameless smile even wilder when she saw that the boy couldn't take it because he was holding the long pool skimmer in both hands and eventually slip into the front pocket of his overalls herself with a giggle and, for your trouble, mother it with false modesty before turning around and sashaying off to oversee the work of her newly acquired maid, a mousy, emaciated-looking girl who in that very moment was clumsily throwing herself into the task of decorating the party chairs with covers and bows. Polo had the feeling he knew her, that he'd seen her before, at school maybe, but he didn't dare look for long. He didn't want his employer to think he was looking at her. So he went back to the business of cleaning the pool, feigning composture and resisting the urge to put his hand in his overall pocket and touch the envelope to gauge what was inside, at least until lunchtime came around, at which point he could lock himself inside the security hut's tiny toilet, take out the envelope with his name written on one side in glittery purple felt-tip pen, and gaze at the two 200 pesos banknote contained within it, both crisp and pressed, and pressed as if fresh from the cash machine. Over time, the overtime, plus tip, which the idiot Urquiza always cheated him out of and which Polo moaned about every time, every time he was made to stay late to clean the mess left over from the parties. A nice cash injection, totally unexpected, and he wouldn't have to tell his mother about it either. He could spend every peso on whatever the hell he liked. Cigarettes, obviously, a couple of bottles of Bacardi, and if it is stretched to that, some phone credit so he could text Milton to tell him to get in touch. But even as he made plans in his head, excited by the prospect of spending his sudden windfall, he felt an aching in his chest, 
and moments later, he was double over the toilet, recurgitating vile in violent, spluttering spasm. And all for having remembered the look on that bitch's face as she slipped the envelope into his overall pocket and the smile that Polo, like some kind of chump, had been obliged to return against his will, unable to stop the muscle on his face from contracting, even though he despised that slut's airs and graces and the barefacedness with which she touched him. Because frankly, it was a hundred times easier to resist the urge to check out her ass when she was jogging around the development in hot pants than to overcome the impulse to return one of Senora's Marianne's smiles. She was that magnetic, that enticing, and they'd instantly know what he was talking about if they'd met her in person and experienced firsthand her powers of seduction. Why the hell hadn't he handed the envelope straight back and told her with every ounce of disdain he could muster, I don't need your handouts, thank you very much. Why hadn't he thrown it back in her face and let her know what he thought of her, that she was nothing but a whore, a gold digger who thought that going around handing out her husband's spare change somehow made her more respectable? And why the hell hadn't she just handed him the money like a normal person? Was she afraid Polo would make her dirty? That he'd infected her with his poor hick ways? Did the bitch really think she could buy him? That she'd bought the right to demand whatever she wanted of him to humiliate him like Urquiza to make him wash her white SUV or her husband's sports car? Who the fuck did she think she was? The fucking Queen Bee, judging by her outfit that afternoon when the party began right on time and she appeared wearing a red dress with blue and green polka dots on it and diamond earrings that clinton whenever she flicked her brown hair from her neck all afternoon polo did his best to ignore her but it was as if an invisible force kept putting her in his path wherever he turned there she was lavishing kisses and hugs on the hordes of little boys and girls running around in swimsuits and on the women dressed head to toe in tropical prints, as is belt and heavily made up as the hostess herself, their, head, their hair straight and inert, as neat, as lifeless as wigs, and the husbands just as ridiculous as their pink polos and pastel shirts, ankle grazer and brown loafers with golf stands and perfectly groomed birds and eyebrows, a clique of pompous voices and clinking ice cubes gathering around that smart smug short as Maroño, who spent the entire party talking, taking photos and talking politics and business in the puff of lingo of professional cocksuckers to a phoning audience who knocked back glass after glass of imported whiskey, not even posing, posing to cop a look at the hostess suite behind, all while their offspring screeched and launched themselves at the juddering bounce castle walls like raving lunatics and did running cannonballs into the pool, shrieking with suicidal glitter, variable audible over the music blaring from the mountain poolside speakers. 
That was wonderful. Thank oh my you. God, <laughs> it was started. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing that. And I think it's 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 really kind of a, a special thing, I think, to to hear a writer read in, in two languages. And I, I think this passage is really a wonderful example of how your your prose operates. And there's a there's a propulsiveness to it. I think of it as being sort of on a runaway train. And stylistically, <laughs> this is a function of your limited use of full stops and the way the sentences wind and play. But it's also the result of really breathless plotting and the anticipation constantly from minute one of disaster and violence. So how did you arrive at this style? Is it something you honed and practiced or did it come more naturally? I, I, well, thank you for this uh, description. Of course, I, I worked so, so hard with, with Paradise. It's such a short book, but at the same time, I think it's very dense. I, I think it's a, it's a style. I mean, a style can always be deliberate. I mean, it's, uh, you just strive to, to create something. Uh, when you write, you normally think you are, I normally think that I'm creating this sort of machine, this sort of um, uh, device that is going to, keep on working even if I'm not there to read it myself hmm. of course and um I I like to think that I um uh that I work hard on the st on style but, but it is true that style has sometimes sometimes more to do with the um unconscious uh, uh tics and and it has to do with the body too uh, for me it's it's a it's something deliberate. It's something with an intention, but at the same time, it's something that writers cannot avoid to include in the in the work. And I think it was Truman Capote who said that all authors are at the end um, are are always a struggle with with style. So mm. you you want to, of course, to to show your style, but at the same time, sometimes the style can be an obstacle to to telling a story. So in this case, I think it was it, it is a combin a combination of um uh, this this sort of prose that entwines lots of voices, uh, uh, characters, uh, and and scenery and dialogue at the same time. I learned to do it uh, when I wrote Hurricane Season, but it, it is true that in Paradise there is uh, the intention to make it even more intense. Uh, uh, it's like in, in, in Hurricane Season, I learned a couple of tricks, <laughs> narrative tricks. And really in Paradise, I really wanted to put it like in the most straightforward uh, way to, to, uh, to put it at the service of, of another story that also has to do a lot of, with, with violence, with anger, with young people, uh, desperate, des desperation about the future. Um, for me, it, it was something at the same time um, that I really worked to technically. But at the same time, for me, it's organic. This story mm. has to be told this way. For me, there was no other choice uh, about the, the style. That's how I experienced it as organic to the the plot. It didn't at all seem like an artifice. It felt like it was it was the needed way to tell it. Uh, but I understand that that also style doesn't come without immense work and and writing and rewriting. Um, but it does feel quite organic. I wanted to ask Sophie, um, Fernanda's style is 
is really nearly sine qua non, and it is certainly wildly different from another writer of yours who I love, Alia Trabuco-Zeran. What was it like to reproduce the runaway train style of paradise? Did you have to reach for new kinds of grammatical structures in English? Um, I think that translation in a way is like a definition of translation in a way is to reach for new kinds of grammatical structures in English, just because uh, it's so rare to find a sentence that absolutely neatly, either in syntax or style or in tone or in register sort of maps onto the, 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 uh, the second language, the language you're translating into. Uh, having said that, I think it was really beautiful listening <laughs> to Fernanda read just now because a couple of things happened. I've never heard Fernanda read the English translation of it. Mm. And when Fernanda just said then, she said like, the style is almost like a de device or a machine that I need to know is going to work when I'm not there. It's almost like the sort of protective thing of like teaching your children manners so that when they go to their friend's house, <laughs> they're going to say, please, thank you. <laughs> but, but, it, but it happened just, just then because I think for two reasons I know it happened. One, because I was happy with what I was hearing. <laughs> and I, I, when I, I, I heard them, the two things together and I, I hear the same story being told by the mm. same person. That may also be because I am the subjective conduit through which the story has been translated in this, in this <laughs> instance. But I hear the same thing. The other thing um, is, is about rhythm. Um, so there are, of course, grammatical um, structures that English can't really handle or doesn't really like that I have to employ when translating Fernanda. For example, a very good example is the comma splice, which as a writer, when I, if I have to write anything at all in English, um, be it an essay or an article or a review or something, I can't bear them. I hate them because English <laughs> has these beautiful semicolons or, um, you know, M dashes or M dashes or whatever the editor wants to avoid to avoid that slight confusion or that dragging out of a sentence mm -hmm. that, that, that a commerce place produces. Um, but Fernanda uses them like a lot, a lot of Spanish, Spanish contains a lot of natural comma splices. It's not incorrect. It's not a grammatical flaw, but like Fernanda takes it to a new level, which is, I think, yeah, it's a given. We know this. I mean, she's, she, she's stretching these sentences that wind on and on. It's kind of hard to understand that when you're listening to her, but reading it, it becomes more apparent and it becomes hypnotic. It's a word as well that lots of people use to describe mm, her. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really effective. Uh, and I think that um, the, the pace when I heard Fernanda reading it and even reading it in obviously a second language, you never read as fast as you would in your first. You could hear that with the two readings. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I felt certain moments where the text sped up um, and it was almost like a like a sort of anger was coming out, like these characters are so repellent and so, and what they're talking about is often so um, at odds with how one reading it would like to think about other people or observe other people, like looking at these kind of um, group of obnoxious party goers who have everything and their sort of servant boy who is observing the party and then suddenly you're you're in Fernanda's land you've like slipped into Polo's head you're angry you're disgusted by them you can understand why he's using 
these descriptive terms that you wouldn't in ordinary life do. Mm. So when they say that fiction transports you, I always think with Fernanda, with what she does, it's like it 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 doesn't it doesn't transport you so you can travel to the story. It's like the story engulfs you. You're suddenly in Polo's mind and you're understanding why this quite unbearable and sort of unsympathetic character feels the way he feels. And I just I'm always amazed by that and always will be. <laughs> That's wonderfully said. I, I wanted to hear more about the relationship that you have as as writer and translator. I, I remember reading once that Borges's translator only felt like he understood how to go about the translation when he saw the man himself drinking tea in a, a Buenos Aires cafe. While this feels a little bit too much like mysticism to me, I do think that that particular relationship between a writer and her translator is meaningful to the process. Could you both discuss your working relationship and perhaps how it evolved between Hurricane Season and Paradise? And was there a cup of tea moment? What I really, I feel really connected to Sophie because we have uh, shared um, hours and hours of work and, and email conversations, questions, uh, and sometimes I send her, I don't know, like YouTube videos trying to explain things uh, that for me are very natural in Veracruz, you know, like, <laughs> and uh, out of context, sometimes it is, it's, it's uncomprehensible. Um, un un and mm. even though I, I just, I feel very connected to her uh, besides, because I, I think she, as a translator, really takes her job as seriously as as I take it as a writer. I mean, she is a writer too. It's a different kind of writing, but it is it is writing. And you put all you, uh, she puts all her resources into finding this new base into which to power the material of of my own base. So it's um, for me that's priceless. You know, like like to find somebody who I think uh, um, make that kind of effort and take as seriously as, as I take it. Uh, for me, it's, it's something that uh, it's, it's, it's so difficult to find. And I don't feel it uh, with, uh, with all of my translators, for example, even though I, I've been having a, a great, uh, uh, great works of, uh, of translation uh, done for several uh, Polish houses. But I don't know, what do you feel, uh, Sophie? Um, yeah, I mean, um, certainly how whether there was a cup of tea moment, like I, I, I read that question as a kind of, was there a moment where I thought I could translate Fernanda and maybe it reveals something about me that part of me re hears that question, Chris, and hears like, was there a specific moment when you thought you, A, had the balls <laughs> and, two, <laughs> and, two, and two, could get away with it? Mm. Because it is, mm -hmm. because this is uh, as people other than just me on my soapbox um, have said this is something special there is something special about Fernanda she's the real deal and it's um, very dense and very complex and and both violent and beautiful and all, and all of these contradictions and it's hard to translate in some ways but the second I read the book I had my cup of tea moment I mm. I almost maniacally tried to get in contact with whoever it was that I would have to convince to translate it <laughs> uh, in a in a way that I don't normally um, or haven't since I guess I was just starting out translating and really keen to get my foot in the door but I 
it moved me so much. I, I felt this book so powerfully. I, I loved rereading the sentences and trying to understand what she'd done and why this register suddenly shifted, but how that was reading as totally normal to me or how suddenly this new voice had begun and it was a totally different voice. And I was just, I, I suppose the word is captivated. And when you're captivated as a translator you, and you know that any book that you're going to translate, you're going to spend a lot of time with, um, and invest energy in, then, yeah, you sort of yeah jump at the chance. Um, so it was not really very romantic, but I did, I did, I did think, okay, um, once I kind of got in touch with people and was being considered to translate it, they asked for a sample. And I remember saying to my husband, I'm going to do a sample. And I spent quite a long time doing the sample, you know, like intense days. And I really enjoyed myself. But I said to my husband, look, I'm going to read this aloud. You know, he's, he reads Spanish as well. I said, read this in Spanish, then listen to me read this aloud. And you tell me if I can do it. How I, am I am I able to do this? Because I'm not sure that I've that I'm good enough, basically. And uh, and he said yes, but then he admitted to me that he hadn't read the Spanish. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah. But okay. I, I think I think a lot about friendship and translation these days because um, out of my job have blossomed various very close friendships, and I. And I count Fernanda as one of those friends because, of course. Um, because what is more intimate really than than talking to people about books and ways of expressing different ways of being in the world and these little sort of minutiae that seem so sort of um, mundane like commas and YouTube videos in isolation when you put them together and you're thinking about you know where, where most of your friendships have blossomed then then it's the same thing it just it just happens to be that a lot of it begins in emails and on the page um, and in fernanda's case i've i've never met her um but like 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 a good or like your favorite author is your friend uh -huh. and i think about and i think about that a lot like maybe i have become friends with uh, a lot of my authors because i've chosen I've been able to, but also I've managed to find a way to translate books that I really believe in, that I mm -hmm. think have something to say that can that can have a positive impact on on readers. Um, and yeah, so I just naturally I want to lean in to Fernando. If that doesn't sound almost terrifying, <laughs> to her. but you sort of well, yeah, and that, and that I think it has to do with the allure of the artist, right? People always want to meet actors or. Uh, you know, or, or writers, or and know more about them and how they, what their writing routine is, and all of those things that, that follow <laughs> that aura that follows the author. I suppose I I have it too. I'm just lucky enough to be able to get to ask the literary questions endlessly, on and on, in endless emails. <laughs> I, I hope that writers and translators get to listen to both of your answers to this because I, <laughs> I find them really affecting and really wonderfully just the collaboration, the sense of the seriousness with which you both undertake the work and understand each other's commitment to it and translation as a as a form of friendship. And it certainly makes makes me want to think more and more about um, the translator writer relationship. So thank you both for those answers. Um, Fernanda, 
Oh, yeah, go ahead. One, one more thing to add to that. Do you, yeah, do you please. Know that, that, but I don't know who the translator was that said that about Borges drinking tea in a, in a Buenos Aires cafe. But Norman, Norman Thomas de Giovanni, who was one of um, Borges's translators, um, they were really good friends. And he had a really sweet anecdote about um, Borges that once they were walking along the street and they went past a post box to post a letter that Borges had. And Borges said, um, like North America, and he patted the post box. And when Norman Thomas de Giovanni <laughs> asked him why he'd done that, he says, I always tell the box where the letter goes. Otherwise, how would it know? <laughs> <laughs> that is the most Borges oh, anecdote you could have possibly given. That was <laughs> that was wonderful. Beautiful. Fernanda, your, your work has gotten a lot of attention for its style, but also for its visceral use of violence. This was especially the case with hurricane season, but it certainly continues in paradise, especially in the final extended plan gone wrong. For me, the question isn't why is it so violent, but where that violence comes from in the world of the novel. In this case, it seems to come both from the incredible in inequities between the gated and walled community of paradise and the overcrowded community of progresso, and also from the om omnipresence of narcotics-related mm -hmm. gang crime. Could you talk about the logic of violence in your novels? Um, sure, I, I think uh, um, it, it, for me, for me, it's it, it's always been a, a, a theme that comes and goes in, in in my in my in my novels in 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 pretty much everything that I've that I've written. I I, I mean, it's it is violence. It, it's very for me. It's very hard to talk about violence in an abstract uh, way. For me, violence is something that is intertwined in, in human nature. And um, I just don't really think that we can get rid of it, of, of this instinctual impulse to be violent, to, to, to do harm. Uh, I think it's something biological that, that, comp that, that drives us to, to, towards life. For example, it's a, I mean, an evolutionary tra uh, trait. But at the same time, it is true that society has managed to um, create, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, control uh, ways to control this violence, ways ways to control this impulse, and even so, sometimes we think that we live with, that we live in the most violent society. That uh, you know, we normally um, we always think contemporary society is the most violent, the most cruel, the most awful. In fact, if you look back into 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 the history of humanity, uh, we're not that bad at all. I mean. Yes, of course. There's horrible things happening every day in every city, especially in 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 um in 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 um zones that are are characterized by inequalities, by uh, economic inequalities and social inequalities. But at the same time, uh, now we have more more controls and we are more um uh, let's say uh, conscious about violence. But still, I I. I like to to talk about that part of ourselves that doesn't really know any controls, that doesn't really know any rules or morals, that that part of of, of ourselves that just wants to live and be free, and that will be able to do anything, just to to arrive to 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 um to accomplish that drive, to accomplish that desire. Uh, it, it is a book that talks about, of course, um, um, poor communities uh gang uh crime that talks about inequalities of course between uh, us, di different social classes in mexico 
and and has to do with race too. I mean, but I think it's also something that talks about mm, the basic rage of being alive and and just being being not able to accomplish the desires that that we have. And it's also a little bit about violence against women, especially because for me, uh, I just recently read um, uh, Deborah Levy's uh, work, and, and she quoted um, she quoted uh, Simone Beauvoir, and Simone Beauvoir said that violence against women is is always a mystery, and I I, I love that 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 sentence that phrase because it is true that we don't really know why. Uh, society and men try to control women and try to, you know, subordinate women. Hmm. Is it because women, we have this special power that needs to be, you know, tame? What is it? And for me, writing these kind of books, writing Hurricane Season, writing, uh, uh, writing Paradise, especially Paradise, it's a book that talks about violence against women and the effort of trying to tame this this danger and this fear that women uh, 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 makes men fear, make, make, make men, uh, feel. Hmm. Um, yes. And the, um, and when I think about the way in which violence operates in your, in your novels and especially, um, paradise, you're always sort of moving in and out of these registers. You move from high and low diction. You're capturing things that are, are vulgar and rough while at the same time giving real beauty to, to everyday life and ordinary people. And I wonder why you, you are drawn to these extremes. Streams. I think I, I like to I, I like to narrate characters this angst this this hate this fear I like to narrate it from within the characters as close as I can to them I like to be in their heads I like to use the words that they will normally use to describe their own environments and their own lives and their own worlds so but at the same time especially with paradise I think I. Uh, you know, in, in hurricane season, I think I was very interested in showing how um, crime is the result um, not only of social inequalities, uh, inequities, but but also to show how crime is the result of deep misery. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. of abuse, of past, of, of being abused. You abuse when you have been abused. You you resort to violence when you've been violated, in, even so, uh, in your life. So I wanted to show how people suffer and how this suffering causes even more suffering. For me, hurricane season is about that. And in paradise, I was also interested in showing that kind of suffering and, and the consequences of, of suffering. But I also was more interested in showing the pretext and the discourses and the lies we tell ourselves to uh, excuse that uh, suffering, that, that pain that we cause in, that we cause in others. So I was, of course, I was interested in misery, but I was also interested in the excuses, we, the lies we tell ourselves to justify that violence. So I needed to have a little bit more distance in the character. So we are inside the head of Polo the whole time, the whole novel. We are inside the head of Polo and, and the head of Franco too, a little bit. But mostly uh, I needed to create this clash of register, this high and low registers is because I really wanted to be close to Polo, but at the same time, I need to be really a part of him to show, you know, his cowardice, 
this pretext, the lies he tells himself, how coward, in fact, he is, how he's not the macho man he thinks he is, how he's, in fact, a, a, a little a scared little boy uh, in, in certain ways. And, and I mean, there was a need to, to uh, distance myself from the character and not be, be, be empathic enough for the reader to understand what the world of this character is about but also to be distant enough to show this this all these all these defects and all these um vices of this character too hmm. that's wonderfully said sophie I, I imagine that violence in fiction comes with its own very particular lexicon how do you approach fernanda's cinematic uses of scenes of violence yeah, I mean, the lexicon is, is really provided for me. Obviously, I have always a few options with the word <laughs> that I go for in the end. And the script is laid out before me. And I'm, at, to a certain degree, I'll always have to interpret it. Um, I, I tried in Paradise, which has this very climactic scene at the end, to stay very true to a stylistic device that Fernanda takes on when she when there's this kind of um, um, bungled uh, crime that happens and it gets more and more dreadful in a messy and horrible and very upsetting way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's described with very cold clarity, very little description beyond precisely what you say, precisely beyond the cinematic. So it's very visual. Um, we don't get at this point. We don't get what anyone's really feeling beyond maybe thirst at a certain point or fear. Yeah. But um, but and I I found myself um, falling out of the the um, syntax that Fernanda had chosen, which was beginning each clause. So the, what it's a one long sentence that runs for about eleven pages, but broken up quite clearly with semicolons to describe each scene that's going on in the house, the scene of the crime, and. I found that I had forgotten or missed something that Fernanda had done. And as soon as I read my next draft, I spotted it because it didn't sound like the book that I had read and reread in the original. And that was that each uh, scene is described and it begins with a, with a noun. So it's like her smile or the car or um, rather than he went towards the car. And obviously, naturally, you, you, you do have to shift syntax um, a little bit when you're translating. And often you do that to sort of avoid repetition that may have uh, uh, like um, emerged in the translation in English, a repetition of a word that isn't a repeated sound in the original, things like that. So obviously, mm -hmm. moving syntax around happens. But I suddenly realized that I'd done this and I'd broken something and I'd sort of mm. um, shifted yeah, shifted this this moment from something very clear and cinematic to something more literary and more sort of readable. And that's and that was what it was not meant to be. The other thing with Fernanda is that there are these in this book that doesn't happen so much in Hurricane Season, I think, is that there's a couple of sort of oddly light, almost terribly comic moments with the with the two uh, main characters who end up doing committing this crime and uh and i think that trying to make those moments light and making sure just that you're being receptive as a translator like listening to all of the possible things that fernanda could have been doing here um and making sure that it that the, the sort of lightness falls in the same way and not too hard 
but that you don't miss it at the same time. Little things yeah. like that. That that's so interesting. The idea of feeling as though you had broken some some piece of the the original and needing to to repair it and to mm. think about that um, idea of no matter the interpretation and and selections that you inevitably need to do and the changes that must happen that there's still a commitment to maintaining a, a kind of hole there. I really like that. Um, when I was in graduate school translation theory was often talked about as a conflict between the desire for the invisibility of the translator and her translation and understanding that what is produced in the translation is itself an original creative work. This conflict has come to the fore again with Jennifer Croft, Olga Tokarczuk's translator, asking for more visibility and credit for her translation work with the Booker Prize winner's works. How do you balance the conflict between wanting something that reads seamlessly and knowing that you're creating something new from Fernanda's work as much as you're maintaining that whole unbrokenness? Mm. Um, the, the honest answer is I, I don't see it as a conflict at all. Um, mainly because I think that invisibility is something um, very desirable as a translator on the page. Mm -hmm. It's almost the only reason I'm here, to put the text through a mangle, reorder everything, find a way to make sure it comes out like sleek and pressed and sounding perfect in English and also delivering the same experience to the reader as close to the same experience to the reader as the one I received as the reader or someone else might have received as the reader of Fernanda's um, original. Um, and so that's one thing. So in, invisibility, I see as something desirable on the page, but recognition, of course, for the work that goes into creating a translation um, is desirable and my personal desire for recognition is really <laughs> it's quite mundane I really just want to be recognized financially <laughs> because, <laughs> mundane uh, but quite important <laughs> yeah, uh, do, do you know the thing is it is important because I, I think if you're going to do it properly translation takes a lot of time uh, you have to ask someone like of Margaret Torcosta who mm -hmm. who um does something like 11 drafts you know that that might be a little bit of kind of legend and myth around her but I, I know that she does because I've worked with her I know that she does a lot of draft it takes a lot of time to do it properly when you're talking especially when you're talking about literature that sort of warrants this second third fourth reading um that uh, and it's a responsibility which I suppose just listening to me talk you can hear what a responsibility I think it is and my responsibility is not to some kind of like art of translation it's to it's to Fernanda, it's to her book. I see them as responsibilities. I don't want to mess it up. And um, when it, you're talking about a really good writer, it's not only that you don't want to mess it up, you, uh, you have to be up to the job. You have to improve. It's like playing tennis. If you play with someone who's better than you, you have to up your game. Otherwise, <laughs> there's no game, right? Um, and so remuneration is, is really re important in that respect. Otherwise, we're not going to have many professional literary translators. Because you, you, I mean, it, quite literally, unless uh, you get some royalties, unless we start to in, like get a bit further with this discussion of royalties and things, there, there's just a limited amount of 
books you can translate a year and do them justice and do them properly um, and that limit leaves you on about a living wage if you get royalties then you your body of work starts to be recognized and you little bit of money trickles in each year and that's just that sustaining mm-hmm. amount um, but I think yeah, the conversation is is very complex around visibility because I think they're two separate things on the page no one no translator I th- I mean, maybe I, I shouldn't say no translator. I think that um, I definitely don't want to be visible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm creating something new, but that's sort of almost obvious, isn't it? Because it's, <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just Fernan- it's Fernanda's books in, in a whole new set of words. And I don't mean to belittle that process. Obviously, I'm here talking about translation and um, I know it's a difficult job and I know that not everyone can do it and it's a skill and you work at it and you get better at it. But at the same time, um, I am not the artist. I'm sort of the artisan, right? If like, <laughs> it's the Republic of translators. <laughs> then we are like Plato's artisans, right? We're the producers. And, Fernanda, yeah. I, I, I'm wondering, since you're a, a, a fluent English speaker, What's it like to then encounter the the work in its new form, um, offering, hopefully, as, as Sophie <laughs> rightly said, a kind of invisibility that allows your work to make the transit between languages? Do you feel yourself in the work or do you ever feel sort of estranged from it as though you're encountering something new? This is a very interesting discussion. I think uh, um, I personally can only read English and French. Those those are the only uh, uh, languages uh, besides Spanish that I speak and read and and talk and 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 can really uh, yeah uh, uh, understand. So what I feel when I read myself in translation, it's uh, for example when I when I read what Sophie uh, Sophie's work, I normally. I get to see the differences, of course. Uh, for example, these these fragments that I've read, I can see that the grammatic differences between some some phrases, some sentences, and uh, sometimes I see that the register didn't go didn't didn't go as 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 elevated as I did in Spanish, or didn't go as as low, or vice versa. But at the end, what what for me it's more important is this thing that Sophie just described. This is slick and pressed, no? I, I impression mm-hmm. because that's the way I when I when I work when I write, I work like that. I mean, I um, I I'm always revising, always always reading out loud the Spanish version, and and I I want to, I wanted to feel like a planchadito, you know, in Spanish, like pressed, like really crisp and pressed, and uh, I feel like that when I read in myself in English. Um, but even 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 besides, there's a very peculiar feeling that I'm reading somebody else, and I am enjoying uh, the 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 book and and the prose and the language and the story in a way that I cannot do in Spanish because when I read in Spanish, I'm seeing all the things that can be changed because we changed the book. The person that wrote Paradise is not the person that I am anymore. We are very much alike, but we are not the same person. Hmm. And uh, sometimes this new person that I'm now, uh, two years after I wrote it, it's it's different and tries to change things. But when I read it in English, it's like that, you know, it's it's like, it's definite. And I really love that. And uh, recently I, 
me, my husband, and, and uh, my, my husband and I, Ms. Jorge Bonic, who is also a writer, we had this presentation here in Berlin in a, in a Spanish language uh, a library and book, bookstore, I'm sorry. And um, he, I read his fragment of his book and he read my fragment, uh, the fragment of my book. So did, we didn't want to read uh, each, each uh, ounce work. So we 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 read each other's uh, book. And when I heard him reading my book, I instantly liked it. I mean, sometimes I read it <laughs> myself and I don't really like it anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking wonderful. in other things. Yes. And, and when I, when I read Sophie, I, I say things like, oh God, I'm good. Like, yeah, that is really nice. Like, I mean, it's so, it sounds yeah. horrible. And, 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 you know, it sounds like, like terrible because it makes me feel like a, a really uh, prideful person or, or I don't know, like, like uh, vanity, you know, but no, no. I, I, I can hear myself like I'm an, like a, like I'm reading something that I didn't wrote and, and it, that's that I didn't write. And it's it's a very, very difficult experience for me to have because I'm always hating what I write. And I, I always want to I, I'm also always in the struggle of of of, um, of having back this invisibility that I used to that I used to have before. And, and now I don't have I have to talk about the books and I wish I was at home writing books instead of talking about books, of course. But, but of course, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation like you wouldn't believe it. It's been wonderful and I'm so happy to to be able to talk about these these things. But at the same time, one part of me just wants to be alone writing another book. I, I I think it's actually wonderful that you that you see in in your writing your your own talent and ability because I think so <laughs> writing is this sort of self hating <laughs> process where you you never like anything that's on the page and you constantly doubt yourself and your ability to finish things and and I think if there isn't at least some time in which you can say. I've produced something that I really like, then I feel like maybe it's not worth it. So I'm glad because that's not n normally what we hear from writers and, and we should because you're giving us pleasure with your work. So you should you should be able to take some from your own work as well, <laughs> at least in my opinion. <laughs> Chris, isn't it kind of true as well that writers often say that only when they get to have a nice quiet chat at the back of a bookstore or something with a with a reader who's telling them about their reading of the book, then often that's a really that's a really beautiful moment too. And they, they sort mm. of can see again some of the good things in their work. And translation as a process is that because it's really just like mm -hmm. Fernanda is reading my reading of her book. Ah, it's so it's uh -huh. a, a wonderful exposure to uh, a reader's interpretation, a very uh, the most intimate kind of interpretation of a work. I think it, so. it is actually yes. Mm -hmm. Um, so Fernanda, I'm interested to hear about how your novels are received in Mexico, as as I only have experience in how they are received in in the U.S. and and Europe. Um, and I'm thinking about Mexico and, and particularly Mexico City as having really been a world literary mecca for a very long time. And I'm wondering whether you see your, your novels as part of a tradition of Mexican writers and who you might um, read within that tradition to find inspiration. Uh, definitely, I I I I feel uh, strongly connected to a to a literary tradition in Mexico. And beyond that, I think to a literary tradition in Latin America, like because mm -hmm. um, 
growing up, I wanted to be a writer, a writer, but also always trying to be a reader. I, I, I remember it was in my 20s when I decided that I needed to concentrate in, in, in reading Spanish, reading works of uh, literature in Spanish exclusively. I did that for like five or six years uh, before, uh, because I, I always, I, I mean, I was a voracious reader since I was a child. But it is true that in Mexico, I think in the whole Spanish-speaking uh, countries, we, we read a lot of translations, and um, mostly from English, of co all kinds of books. I mean, commercial ones, but also literary ones. And, and re we read a lot of translated literature. And um, you, you sort of lose contact with, um, with, with your own language and the own possibilities of your language. Also, when we talk about Spanish, we talk about huge, uh, a huge diversity of accents mm -hmm. and, and vocabulary and, and grammatic. And, and there's a wide range of Spanish when we talk about Spanish-speaking countries. So I definitely feel connected to writers like, for example, in Mexico, uh, of course, Juan Rulfo. For, for me, Juan Rulfo was something that changed my vision of Mexican literature when I read Juan Rulfo, when I read Pedro Paramo, was like mind blowing. Uh, I never thought that Mexican literature could do things like that. But also uh, um, th uh, writers like uh, Jose Agustin, who introduced um, the, the, the everyday language, like the colloquial language, with even music and, and English references uh, uh, into, into, into novels. And, and something that uh, also the boom writers, the Latin American boom writers like Garcia Marquez, Jose Donoso, Manuel Puig, they all do that. They, they, they turn to their national languages and they turn it into literature. For me, it was very important to, to be able to, to do that. And also writers like uh, Sergio Pitol, for example, who's uh, been recently uh, reread um, uh, the, the things that he done for me, it's 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 very interesting. For me, it's a, it's also a Roberto Bolaño, for example, has been a, a very interesting influence, and also writers like uh, Rosario Castellanos, uh, Ines Arredondo, uh, um, and and recently uh, writers like um, Nona Fernandez or uh, Marian Enriquez or Pilar Quintana, who also sort of work uh, in, in in sounds and textures and and uh atmospheres dark atmospheres that i really like uh, alia trabuco is one of them too or uh andrea abreu from spain i mean uh, what's beautiful in in um in in the in the in the spanish language literature is that it is very vast and you can have very different spanish all over and you can learn a lot of uh, from them for, for me i also think that i was very influenced by american writers uh, so I, I like to think that i'm a I, I'm a pan-American uh, mm. writer. Mm. Uh, most of my that. influences, yes, I, I am. I am. I am a very American, Argentinian, and American writers for me are the ones that not only entertain me, but uh, they they taught me how to write. That, what a great list! There's there's so many on there that I already love, um, but but others that I'm that I will be exploring. Sophie, um, it, going off of Fernanda's really important point of just the vast diversity of Spanish that we see geographically, culturally across the world. Um, you yourself have worked with writers from Chile and Mexico and Spain, among others. How do you preserve the specificity of the language differences within Spanish as you're 
turning them into English? Mm, that's a good question. I think some translators take the tactic of sort of limiting where the the their area to like um, restricting it to kind of areas that they know and they would say oh I've only really lived in Argentina so I will just translate um, writers from there I don't do that I think if the book speaks to me that I mean books can speak across if they can speak across languages then they can speak across Spanishes too so I as long as I think the book is brilliant and I love it then I and then the other thing that's important is a massive dose of humility like mm. establishing a relationship with the author or with someone that you're able to ask the questions that you don't know, curiosity. There's a really beautiful um, uh, um, essay written by Margaret Sayers Pedden, who, who's a sort of stalwart translator of Spanish. And at the beginning of this um, essay on translation, she puts a pop quiz of all the trivia she's learned as a translator. <laughs> like the first one is, what's the gestation period of a whale? Um, <laughs> and all these little things that she's learned. And I think that you, you learn a lot about different different Spanishes, you learn a lot about different cultures, and that's one of the joys of the job. It wouldn't ever put me off translating something unless something mm -hmm. in me realized that I just, I wasn't, I wasn't understanding the book, in which case I wouldn't dare to trans translate it. This feels like a particularly rich moment for translated literatures. The U.S. Um, in particular has always been very parochial about its reading habits, but there seems to be a breakthrough in the amount of translated literature that's being bought and read here. Thank goodness. Um, could you tell us about um, some of your, both of you, some of your favorite writers um, in translation right now? There is one particular category of writers that I do uh, read in, in translation, in English, translated in English, and it's Asian and African uh, writers, because um, there hasn't been much effort uh, in, in, in Spanish and Spanish language uh, uh, publishing houses to translate, or sometimes there wouldn't be enough translators to, to do that effort. And in English, uh, sometimes English language is the, is the, uh, the way to, to read uh, and uh, literatures, new literatures, contemporary literatures from Asia and, and Africa. And, uh, and yes, that, that will be the uh, titles and the authors that I'm uh, normally looking forward to reading in English, translated to English. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of thinking about um, the kind of bridges that can happen with translation that mm -hmm. are unexpected. The attention that certain language traditions will put on other parts of the world that that others won't. Exactly. Um, and Sophie, I think I, I agree with Fernanda that there's a kind of boom time um, for both like translation um, into English uh, fiction um, still mainly literary fiction and also for women in translation i at the moment i mean i, I i'm the opposite of fernanda i tend to often read in translation because it's just an occupational hazard <laughs> the books i get sent <laughs> and the people i work with send them and then um but I, I think one of the nice things that's been happening recently is that um people are seeing that small presses publishing translations are working i mean uh Often they're not for profits, but they're sort of working in the sense that they are spreading and growing readerships and uh, presses like Fitz Corralda that's now sort of straddling. I mean, they are fully independent, um, but they're also really successful and they're kind of defining what gets read in certain um, reading circles in the UK, at least. So um, 
I'm quite interested at the moment in seeing new presses in translation that are coming up that have really specific uh, remits. So, for example, V&Q Books, uh, which um, publishes, it's Katie Derbyshire, who's a translator from German, and she set up V&Q Books imprint, which is remarkable writing from Germany. And then there's Charco Press, who now distributes as well in the US, um, and they focus exclusively or almost exclusively on Latin America. Press, Press which is focusing now um, on uh, Maltese literature, if you can oh, believe wow. it. Oh, I've just read one of their books. It's absolutely brilliant. And that's Kat Storis and Jen Kaleya, another translator. Uh, and Tilted Access Press, which had, I think, two or three books on the book along list um, this year, the International Book Along List. They've been publishing works mainly by Asian writers. And what's interesting mm -hmm. about it is, is like putting the experts in the right spot, you know? So like instead of uh, editors looking around the world, flailing around going, oh, what about maybe something from France or maybe something from Spain? And <laughs> instead you have the experts who are reading on the ground, uh, yes. living in these yeah. places saying, no, it's quite clear what the book we should be translating at the moment is. And it's, and it's this one. Uh, so it's an interesting time, a brilliant time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it feels a really exciting and and vibrant time for, as you say, discovering the writers we should be reading mm -hmm. um, that that folks on the ground know that are making making an impact and making a difference. I very much count Fernanda as one of those those writers, and you can <laughs> just feel the the impact uh, that your work is is making. Um, and and for that reason and, and many others, I'm so happy that the two of you were able to come on today and, and discuss Paradise and also discuss your working relationship, which is a really quite wonderful example of what a writer and translator can do together. So thank you both so much. Thank you so no, much, Chris. Thank you, Chris. It's been, it's been great. I, I had so much fun. Thanks again. That's all from me for now. My great thanks to Fernanda Melchor and Sophie Hughes for offering a wonderful picture of the translation process and the working relationship between a writer and her translator. Fernanda's Paradise is available for purchase at our website, burnedbybooks.com, along with all of the texts mentioned in this episode. I can't wait for the next program when I'll interview Elif Bataman about her follow-up to the Pulitzer Prize-nominated The Idiot, a new novel of Celine's time at Harvard, either or. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>